Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. Ariana. And today we have uh, something I'm sure audiences are excited about, which is an Allison Bree Jeff Baina double feature. <laughs> and now we have a bunch of people who, if they've decided to click on this and listen to her, they're like, who? What? Uh, so Jeff Baina is a director. American director. Uh, he's done films such as The Life of Beth, The Little Hours, and then the films we're going to be reviewing today, which are Horse Girl and the recently released Spin Me Round. Uh, indie director, very unique sense of humor, often very like dry, uh, weird. Is I think these are words that are good to describe yeah. him, like off, off kilter a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of moves at his own pace in his films. Yes. And he's, he's certainly a director who I feel like is making the kind of movies that entertain him. Yes. And if other people want to watch them, it's kind of a system where you have to make movies that way, where he's yeah. like, if you want to watch this movie I like, you can. But I made it for me and my friends. Uh, so these are two films, his two most recent films, and he collaborated with Alison Brie on them. Uh, they co-wrote the scripts together on okay. both, I found out. And Horse Girl was Alison Brie's first uh, screenwriting okay, credit. Okay, that's cool. Uh, and for our audience, if you don't know who Alison Brie is, uh, she was played Annie in Community, and she yes. was also Pete's wife on Mad Men. Uh, she was, I think, the lead on the series Glow on Netflix yes. about women's professional wrestling. She's popped up here and there in other roles in movies and things yeah, like that. Yeah, she was in a... A romantic comedy with Jason Sudeikis called Sleeping with Other People, mm-hmm. which I actually did really enjoy. Good for you. Um, <laughs> so Jeez. We're going to first start by talking about Horse Girl. Horse Girl was a Netflix uh, exclusive film that was released on the platform in 2020. Yeah. But I think COVID kind of it got lost in the shuffle because I think it was early 2020. Was it was there. early 2020. Yeah, January 27th. So. And it was also towards the beginning when Netflix was trying to be like, we've got movies that will get awards. Because this is around the time that... I think that, it came like, right after like Roma and things yes. like that. Yeah, And like The Irishman and all that. Yeah, yeah. And now they've pivoted away from that. Oh, yeah. Though with uh, White Noise from Noah Baumbach, it seems like there's still a few, but it's certainly they're not... No, it's not as yeah. big as yeah. it was before. It's becoming the tween young adult shitty... Yeah. And then like a, reality shows. Yeah, and, yeah, this is during the time when like uh, they were kind of like pushing the envelope because they're just going to be like, hey, we might be in awards uh, seasons and like other film uh, locations were like no you can't put a film that's on a streaming platform to win awards and that's when they did limited releases Uh, so Horse Girl uh, stars Alison Brie as Sarah she's a very awkward woman who works at a craft store uh, has grown up loving horses as the title implies though she doesn't ride anymore and we find out about why later in the film but it's pretty clear there's something like off about Sarah. Yeah. She has um, a close co-worker uh, played by Molly Shannon named Joan. So it's an older motherly kind of figure who you can tell is concerned for Sarah, but doesn't think there's anything that bad. 
Um, she has a roommate played by Debbie Ryan named Nikki, who also and Molly Shannon and Debbie Ryan appear in both of these movies as well. Yeah, uh, and Nikki, very neurotypical, has a boyfriend, is isn't a bad person, and tries to include Sarah, but Sarah just doesn't really want to do the things that Nikki and her boyfriend do. Like, yeah, she not just wants in to it. be comfortable yeah. at home. Uh, Sarah loves a show. Uh, oh, it's like sort of like Supernatural or Buffy. Yeah, a fake in movie show. Uh, Which was uh, really great because it's uh, Matthew Gray Goobler and Robin Tunney. Who it, and it's funny because it's like he's almost playing the Criminal Minds kind of like setup, but with supernatural stuff. Nope. And I think she's rewatched the show several times. Yeah, it's a big fan. The movie has a very like '90s vibe to it, yeah, aesthetically. Mm-hmm. So it, and, but I don't feel like it's set in the '90s. But I think for we're seeing it from her perspective. So I think the '90s were a very um, formative time for her, like the mid late '90s as a person. And so she's kind of clinging to the elements from her childhood at that time in a bit of a way because they're comforts, like little blankets that she can kind of well, hold it's on to. comforts, but it's also the type of shows that she's watching are still being made now. Because I think about like magicians, I think about the show. Like, but I mean, this had a very a Buffy show. vibe to yeah, it. Yeah, I forgot the Canadian show that was. Um, but I, but yeah, it was Buffy vibes. It's cheap shows. It's and so she ends up uh, dating a mutual friend of uh, Nikki's boyfriend Brian. Named Darren, played by John Paul Reynolds, who, if you've watched Search Party, he was Dory's boyfriend on that show. Or he's like one of the cops in Stranger Things. And so Sarah seems to get along with Darren, and Darren really gets along with Sarah. Yeah. And it seems as though, you know, she's kind of weird, awkward, but things are kind of working out for her. And then really weird things start happening. Yeah. And you're not sure what's real. You're not sure what's in her head. And the movie ends on a very ambiguous, ambiguous d- downbeat note. I yeah. feel. Uh, so, what did you think of Horse Girl? I thought it was better than I perceived it was going to be. I remember watching the trailers back in mm-hmm. 2020, and for it to just be lost between the mix of all the other stuff that we would watch and. Sometimes I would watch things on my own and do a few reviews here and there for the blog, but I I really thought it was a thoughtful movie of sorts. There, um, this character isn't likable all the time. Mm-hmm. She's very sweet. She's like very like endearing, and you almost want to cheer for her, but at the same time. You feel so sad because all the times that maybe that she could have gotten help, she isn't getting it. So she expresses like distress or she's like clearly vulnerable, but because people don't know how to react, she doesn't get the help that she needs. Mm-hmm. And it just gets deeply sad. Like um, at some point, she's having a conversation with Darren and she's kind of expressing what her what her beliefs are and he um just thinks she's joking so he plays along with it until she takes him somewhere that's out of the norm and he doesn't want to leave her there like he's like please just come in the car like please let me take you home but she is already so wrapped up in everything 
that it's a little too late and she can't take his help. So she has isolated herself and it gets to the point that it's like her roommate finally notices it, it is a breaking point, but nobody comes in afterwards to check on her like her stepdad who like she thought was her dad for a while and you also start to see like why she is the way she is i mean yeah there's one sort of pivotal event that has i think shaped her it was kind of like yeah that straw that broke the camel's back kind I of i think thing. it was several though well i think the one in the horseback riding thing i think the film points at that as like this this was kind of where things really got bad yeah I'm, and then they just started to kind of snowball and decline since yeah, then because it's sort of like what happens is during her childhood she there's an incident that a friend falls off a horse and is permanently brain damaged damaged yeah. and um afterwards it turns out that her mother had um depression and had basically taken her own life as a result of it and we later figure out that her grandmother had bipolar disorder and possibly schizophrenia. And she starts to believe that maybe her grandmother wasn't crazy and that she is her grandmother's possible clone. Well, she also starts to believe that she's being abducted by aliens. Yes. And will see people in those experiences that then she sees in her waking life. And so the film does a very good job of it's, I would argue, it all takes place from her perspective. Yes. Even if it's, even if we get to see and hear what other characters are doing, this is from Sarah's perspective. Mm -hmm. So her reality is the only reality we really have to cling on to while we're watching. Yeah. And then the few times that someone's like, maybe you should get help. It's so light that it's, she can't take that as concern. There's at some point where she is sleepwalking and she hasn't told anybody in reality that she's sleepwalking. She confessed to it like afterwards and the, her roommate's boyfriend catches her sleepwalking because she's basically facing a wall mm -hmm. and he's spooked out. Um, and funny enough, like when his room, this like the boyfriend's friend uh, like shows up to meet Sarah, he's like, oh. He's like, oh, she's just weird. She walks around in her sleep. Kind of mumbles it out of, like, Nikki's earshot. Mm -hmm. So he never tells Nikki, never really shows concern. He's just put off by her. He just doesn't like her because she isn't normal. Meanwhile, Nikki is trying to include her so she can sort of, like... She thinks it will help her mental state. Help, help her mental state. But at the same time, like, there's... The concerns aren't regarded... It's so, again, light. Like, it's like, oh, there's a scratch on the wall. You should get someone to fix that. Or, like, the fact that she has the pipes redone in the house. and In the apartment that they're yeah, There's a lot in. of, like, manic behavior. Yes, there's manic behavior that isn't really regarded. But, again, since we are viewing it from her point of we view. We don't know if it is, though. We, we <laughs> don't really know, like, how serious everyone else is taking it. But it's also, you just, they did so well of balancing between showing her as she truly is and then being sympathetic towards her. Because even though she's going through these manic phases, she's constantly apologizing to yeah. other people yeah. because of it. Yeah, I think it did a good job of presenting like 
most people who have mental illness are not just completely psychotic. Yeah. That they have clarity, they have moments of clarity, they are cogent at times, but when something triggers the mental illness or it flares up, it just becomes very difficult to like reason with them because they can't see the world the way you're seeing yeah. it. Yeah. And I think it was interesting in that I don't see the movie as a social commentary of any no. kind. Like, it's not talking about, like, we need to fund mental hospitals. It's a character study is what it is. It's Alison Brie and Jeff Baina basically were like, we want to tell a story just about this character. And we're not going to tell you what the solution is or even specifically tell you what the problem is. It's just this is a character who sees the world in a way that not many other people do. And that's a struggle for her mm-hmm. because she can't quite hold on to reality all the time. And I also liked how uh, it was also about how hard it is for people around those with severe mental illness to help them, especially when they're an adult. Yeah. Because, you know, legally, you can't just restrain them or lock them in a room. Yeah. They're an autonomous person. And so you can suggest things. And, I mean, most people aren't very educated on mental illness, so it makes sense that, you know, her roommate, her co-workers, even her stepdad, just, they don't know. They don't know Because they don't know do. what do you say to someone yeah, who's in this state. it's also because she's not telling everybody the whole truth. Yeah. And once she kind of does, it's, it's too late. Because even she knows there's something wrong. Yeah, I mean, but she's clinging to the reality that she's made in order to explain why it's wrong and not go to the traditional methods of like, and I did like the fact that going back into the film, when she talks about her grandmother, she does talk about like, well then I think it was like Reagan took over and they do mention that. Yeah. When Reagan defunded things like she was in a mental, like her grandmother was in a mental hospital. Reagan came in and defunded and she just wandered around the streets and died. Yeah. Like there was no like, Oh, she died in a, in in a mental hospital. And I saw her on a regular, like, no, it was probably something. She was homeless and she died in the streets. And like, it's also, that was probably led to her mother's depression of knowing like her mother had died on the streets not having seen her and the absence of like like her grandmother impacted her mother to have depression and how when she starts to have problems she asks her like her stepfather like how bad was it because it's almost as if she's trying to do a comparison because she's trying to cling to whatever she has but it's already like it's getting to the point that it's too late because he never stops and be like, hey, are you OK? Because you're asking this. He kind of brushes it off because it's hurtful because he did divorce her. Like it's like he abandoned his ex-wife. And like, yeah, like it's not within someone's responsibility to take care of them when they're in that position. But it's like he feels responsible. So he instead of maybe making giving her emotional uh like support he's financially trying like, to, cause he's, he he's owns like, the car that she drives i think his name is on the title or like something. It, the name is on the title but he's also asking her do you need money yeah and she's it's like, all material no, stuff no, which I she needs <laughs> like she needs but she's she doesn't want to take that it's obvious she wants something else from him but there is that strife of it being like he's not her biological father 
there's Do some... they ever talk about her biological father? I don't really uh, remember. She doesn't know. It seemed like from the film she didn't know who he was. She oh, okay. thought it was him until it was revealed to her that he wasn't. So it's someone that like her mother just has never never told her who it was. Yeah. Um, I think... I think it did a very good job of not being exploitative, which is a very easy thing for a movie on this type of subject matter to be. Yeah, they didn't make her like a grotesque human being. No. Like she's she's someone that when you meet, like when the initial conversation, you're like, oh my God, she she's a sweet girl. Yeah, she's like very quiet, soft-spoken. And like when she's in environments that are very like controlled she does well so like at her workplace when she's working with customers for the most part like she does well because she understands like these are the boundaries these are the expectations and it's around things that she likes like she's constantly making crafts she knows how to like sew so she likes being in things and whether she's like basically solitude kind of like hobbies which are perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. And then her workplace where she gets to talk about the things that she likes, which is crafting. Yeah. And uh, But I think what's interesting, the element we haven't talked about yet, is the stables. Yes. Where uh, two character actors, who I really like, it's um, Toby Huss and Laura Wo- Lauren Woodman, who you've seen these people in things, I guarantee She's been in everything, and yeah. he's probably one of my he favorite. Halt and Catch Fire, he's yes. great. Yes, any time I've seen him after Halt and Catch Fire, I'm happy to see him. And then uh, the first David Gordon Green Halloween movie, where he played the son-in-law of Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah. And he's great, great. Yeah. Very, always feels very natural, charming, feels like a real person. Yeah. You're uh, and so they're the owners of the stables, and Sarah keeps coming around there, and we eventually learn, like, oh, these are the stables she went to when she was a little girl, and we eventually find out that incident happened, and they're both, they seem very conflicted about her presence at the stables. Yes, because at first we think that she owns the horse, and she's just lending the horse out to this, uh, like, teenager who's practicing, only to find out that the horse is no longer hers. Mm-hmm. Like, they're like, this horse isn't yours anymore. And she genuinely seems like she does not know that, which I think is also part of the... No, no she knows it. She just, like... They She's just... in denial about it. Yeah, it's the thing that makes her happy. Uh, and so, that's... that. The whole stuff with the stable is the first part where you really start to realize something is off because these people are acting very odd around her. Yes, and it's probably the tension slash guilt of what happened to her friend. Yeah. Because it probably happened on their property with a horse that they had trained. And and they realize that Sarah hasn't processed it fully. Then that's why she keeps coming around the stables. Yeah. And they're worried she's going, to, I think, probably to have a breakdown there. And, you know, they'll be liable. It'll be another incident that, like, mars what they're doing. And you can tell it's like, it's not that they don't care about her she's not related to them. They don't really know her outside of... They had a transactional relationship. Something horrific happened, and they just know that, for example, if they make a big tiff of her not being there, it will look really bad if, like, say, the media or the internet caught on because it's supposed to be, like, poor young woman who was traumatized by blah, blah, blah is no longer able to see the horse that was hers for whatever reason. I also think um, the inclusion of the sort of 90s retro supernatural show, mm-hmm. elements of that show become parts of her fantasy. Yes. And to me, and this may have not even been intended, 
But I see things like that, uh, and I relate it to the way there are these sort of subcultures within America who make pieces of media their identity. Yes. And they allow it, like, they so identify with a fictional character that that boundary between fantasy and reality starts to crumble in their heads. Yeah. And it never leads anywhere good, I feel like. It's this, and I think that's also, it's different from the mental illness, but it's almost like a little piece of commentary about media literacy, that the way we engage with media in the United States isn't in a healthy way. So then when you have someone who has a predisposition to depression, bipolar disorder, other like, you know, mental illnesses, because we don't teach people how to engage, these types of things can happen where someone like it becomes reality for them. Mm-hmm. And it's not like an epidemic or anything, no. but it's something to think about. Like when we talk about shows, we don't really do, you know, here on the podcast we do. But in your everyday life, when you sit down and talk to your friend about a show, you don't really do like a, an analysis of it. But I think people should because you yeah. can talk about like, because well, I was thinking earlier today, when you talk about, when we talk about certain movies and things, when we say what they're about, we shouldn't describe the plot because that's not what a good piece of media or a piece of art is about. Uh, Planet of the Apes is an example, which we were talking about yesterday. Um, Planet of the Apes, the story is an astronaut crashes on a planet and there are anthropomorphic apes in charge. That's yeah. the story. Mm-hmm. The The movie is about humanity destroying itself. And it's important that like when we talk about media, we talk about what it's about. So Buffy is the story of a girl who learns that she is a slayer and combats supernatural things in her um her hometown but you could argue that the show is about the difficulties of like growing up as a young woman and responsibility being given to you at a certain age that you're not ready for and how do you handle that responsibility the importance of mentors when you're given that responsibility that we can't just give you responsibility and send you out there and so i don't get the sense that in america in the you know 40 years that i lived there uh that we're having those conversations. Well, I think it's also... And it's sad because those are good conversations to have. I think it's also like this new thing about... Now people are openly admitting to it. But it's the concern that certain people are like, I like this character from this show, so I'm going to adopt this personality and these aspects. These key things that I feel that it's the ideal person. Mm -hmm. And... I wonder, like, how much Allison Brie made a remark about, like, maybe she's met fans and said, Community's like my comfort show. I've watched it three, like, yeah. because there's a remark that when she talks to Darren, um, the guy that she meets, she's like, you have the same name as the main character of the show. This is obviously fate. It's my favorite very, show. Like, almost like an autistic info dump kind of a thing. Because yes. she's very fixated. And it's... Like, it's it's fate, it is, like, and that means you're a good guy. And he is, like, a good on, guy. Like, there's no one in this movie that's bad. That's but the thing. It <laughs> is, but that is something that, like, I find fascinating having read or seen people, like, on social media being, like, really open about that. And But it also makes you kind of sad because there's one thing to have representation and there's something about, 
like adopting something well, and making and changing yourself to the point that it's like to be a fictional a, a person who isn't real <laughs> who because, was written who was imagined yeah and you're adapting it because you feel like that is the pleasing aspect and there's obviously fake it to your make it kind of attitude well, there's the, the big problem i see in social media is okay you've adopted this character as your identity well not everybody has and there will be conversations online where people want to do, you know, a critical analysis of that character or that piece of media. And if they say something that is negative or could be interpreted as negative, these people who have made it their identity behave like zealots, like religious zealots, yeah, that people, this is heresy and you are blaspheming against well, the holy they put, text. They put people and characters on a pedestal to a point that once, like... Once that they show that that it's not a good thing, it it just crumbles everything. It just ruins everything. Cause I think of why uh, like Taika Waititi about we didn't enjoy like the last Thor. We didn't yeah, enjoy man. it, and we have friends that did enjoy it, and it's like cool. But it's also this thing of like they put them up to a point that it's like this person can't have fault. And that is impossible to do because we are human, we make errors, we can learn from those errors and be a better person. But unfortunately with this online media, like people are scouring through, checking like if you've had social media for so long, you're gonna find something that they said and now they're gonna have to apologize or show that they're different or maybe not even make a remark, but now everybody's going to be fixated. And then you're going to have people that are just like, I am never watching another thing from them ever for the rest of my life. Because it's it's minor compared to well, something. Coming back to Horse Girl and her, like, this show is so important in her life. Yeah. And she is neglecting parts of her life to sit at home alone and watch the show. Yeah. And so it's getting, and that's something in America that is a big problem. I think especially right now, people are really disconnecting from reality for very uh understandable reasons yeah. reality is very hard right now but i just i think if that is a behavior that's encouraged it's gonna end up real bad because the only way these things that are making reality hard mm -hmm. can be solved is by directly engaging in them and finding solutions and dealing with them and you have almost an entire population that has just shut their brain off to that. Well, it's this, and it's like I just I want to sit and binge watch my comfort show every day until I die. I think it's also it's it's a problem, especially when you think about like mental health. Yes, yeah, societal collapses right around the corner. I get it. You don't want to be around. Yeah. My thing's like society societies have collapsed since humanity started making them. Yeah, but we could deal with mental health regardless of whether societies are yeah, collapsing. Yeah, and or not. the thing is like. By the isolation, it's just going to increase certain things. Sometimes isolation is good for some people. They need that healing because they just never really learn to interact. But you still need to learn how to interact with other people. But it's also this interesting thing that Sarah in Horse Girl doesn't really meet anybody who is good at interacting with her. Like she never, like there are people who like her. But they, she never shows herself completely to people. And because of that, they don't really know her fully. Like yes. her co-worker It's people knows... who know who she is, but they don't know her. Yeah. And the thing is, like, 
uh, her coworker is like, oh, your birthday's coming up. What are you going to do? She's like, oh, I'm just going to like hang out with some Zumba friends. And she does go to Zumba, but she ha- doesn't have any friends there. She tries. Yeah. It's awkward to watch, but she it's not where she's going to meet her like, her people. She's been so, st- I mean, she's emotionally stunted because like yeah. her maturity is not where it should be. And it's been going on for so long and hasn't been addressed by anyone. Because, I mean, the incident that occurs is when she's a child. So it was sort of... She clearly didn't go to any sort of therapy and process and what happened. And the thing is, like, it also happened with her best friend. Yeah. But when we see her go visit her best friend, who uh, behaves as if she does have, like, you know, major cognitive brain damage. Yeah. And she still has a relationship with this woman... Who, and I mean, even though she's a woman, she behaves like a little child and she has to live with her mother for the rest of her life or a caretaker. She's like having seizures and stuff like that. And it's like Sarah is kind of forcing herself to have this ideal life so her friend doesn't feel bad. And it's she feels guilt about what happened to her friend, and no one has ever helped her process that and understand that she doesn't need to have guilt about it. It was an accident. It's a vicious cycle because she keeps visiting her. And she keeps telling her, like, "Ah, everything's great. Like, I met a guy and, like, everything's awesome. But it's, like, it it doesn't help because, like, the guilt is there and it's not as if she's processed in a healthy way. So she's going to make things bigger than they need to be and then, therefore, it's going to, like, like, it ends up ruining her. Yeah, I mean, we see by the end of the movie is because no one has helped guide her through this... I mean, and she, there is, like, you know, a mental health professional that shows up near the end, but it's almost like it was too little too late. It's come at a point where her mind is so fragmented, her grip on reality is so loose, that the amount of work and time that will need to be put into this to help her is beyond the resources that these places are well, given, Well, it's right? also like, the fact that she's only supposed to be there for a certain amount of time. 72 hours, yeah. she had a breakdown. She already is cognitively like losing time Mm -hmm. and so the second time she meets him she's confused and he's like we messed we met the doctor and uh later on she's confused because he was like i I, it was like and the movie does very well where you are with sarah you are confused as to where the fuck she was supposed to every time she's confused you are with her so it's it makes her very sympathetic yeah and then like she and then he's like, all right, um, you have to be released. We can't contain you. And Sarah's almost like, what? She doesn't want to go. She doesn't want to go. And he doesn't even tell her, like, hey, you can go to this place for, you should go to this place for X amount of time. He's just kind of like, you, you got to go. And in that way, the movie is, again, she mentions her grandmother, like, being released because of the Reagan thing, her being only there for 72 hours. There is a light remark on, hey, isn't this really fucked up? Because she wants help, but they're just pushing her out. But ultimately, I don't think the film is that concerned with that part. It's more just about, I want you to understand this woman, and I want you to understand the way she sees the world. So... You don't judge people like her. You understand that, like, they just aren't processing reality in the same way as me, yeah. and they just need some help. They need some help, but it's also I like the fact that they don't they don't neglect the fact that it's like, unfortunately, it's going to be on her and someone else to to get that help. All right. Well, when we come back, we will be talking about our second Jeff Baina Allison Brie film, 
Spin Me Round. So our next film is Spin Me Round, which was released in theaters, I believe, and on demand uh, just this past weekend, or I think the previous weekend, the previous weekend. Uh, And this, once again, stars Alison Brie. She plays Amber, who is a manager at a sort of Olive Garden type restaurant. She wins an all-expenses-paid trip to the company's uh, institute, which is located in Florence, Italy. And she also gets the chance to uh, meet the restaurant chain's wealthy and charismatic owner. And when she arrives there, things do not go as she planned. And they just kind of get weirder and weirder the longer she's there. Uh, And so, yes, Alison Brie plays Amber. Uh, Alessandro Nivola plays Nick, who's the owner of the uh, restaurant chain. And if you see the poster of it, it is meant to look like an old, like, paperback romance novel. Yeah. Which is kind of an interesting trick because it is not a romance movie. It's not <laughs> It's romantic. a lot of different yeah. things all at once. And it's a movie that I could see a large portion of the audience being turned off by. Mm-hmm. Because it is messy. Yes, it is. It is messy. Um, what did you just think in general about the movie, Alison Brie and the movie? And all that? I think Alison Brie is, again, pretty strong lead. I thought the cast was amazing. She the, plays a much more grounded person here. Yes, uh, much more grounded. And um, it was a good cast. Oh, yeah. There was also a very, like, from the beginning, we started getting hints of what was going on. And there's some like weirdness about it it felt as if like they wanted to make a a, like a like a light remark on the me too movement or like i don't think that yeah stuff like that but it they just it it just felt like they went a little too soft for me well i mean i don't even think that was like an intent of the movie i think the movie was just like we want to make a movie that constantly kind of morphs what it is every yeah. 25 minutes or so. So you think it's this kind of a movie and then you learn something else and then the tone of the movie changes a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd say the weakest part is probably maybe like the last 25 minutes of the movie because it just kind of goes yeah. off the rails at that point. And I still laughed at certain points, but I just did not feel as engaged in the movie at that point because I was yeah. like, oh, okay, we're... Okay, I mean, that's funny, but... It's, I don't know how all of this, like, cohesively comes together. Yeah, and, like, unfortunately, um, like, Aubrey Plaza is in this film, and she's married to... Jeff Baina. Yeah, yeah, Jeff Baina. And she was in uh, Little, Life, Hours, Little and, Hours, Life with Beth, yeah. a lot of his other films. Yeah. Um, and she just is gone from the film. Yeah, it seems Which like is, she, she plays, like, a really important role, and then... Like, two-thirds of the way in the movie, you just never see her again. Which, like, in a sense, I think they were being realistic of, uh, I mean, obviously spoilers. I, I feel like I say that in every episode. Um, but, you know, she gets fired. And I and I feel like they just played it realistic of, like, okay, she got fired. She's not going to come back. But then even then, like, the movie is all about these kind of, like, deceits. 
So someone says one thing, and then a bit later we find out that was an, a complete lie. Yeah. And so whenever they said she was fired, my whole guess was, oh, she, they didn't really fire her. And then later Amber is going to find out that she's still around. And then that just doesn't happen. And so it feels like it kind of breaks the rhythm that the movie was setting up. Yeah. Um, I, when we're talking about like what it is... I think what it is at its core, the movie even drops a hint of this, is them kind of poking fun at that eat, pray, love genre of, you know, the white woman going abroad to somewhere romantic like Italy and, you know, rediscovering herself and finding love. And because you feel like it might be doing that. Yeah, and then it just is like, uh, no, it's you're gonna it's gonna be kind of a horror movie. It's gonna be a slapstick comedy. It's just gonna be an absurdist film at a certain she point. She still finds herself, but it's not the way it's, that we yes. expect her. She does to. not find herself through like a nice, pleasant enlightenment. She finds herself by realizing what assholes a lot of people are. And so it feels like a much more realistic way of finding yourself. Yeah. And like, again, it's not, it's not a terrible movie. No. It's not the best movie. Again, it's a mid tier movie, but you like the performances were great. Every, there was nobody that I, I saw in this movie that I thought to myself, what a miscast. They should not Oh, yeah, everybody's there. perfectly cast. Everybody, like, knows exactly what they're doing. He knows how to use them very well. It felt like an 80s movie. Yeah. Where you would have those, they were, like, you know, mid-tier budget movies. They were never blockbusters, but they were the kind of thing that HBO would rerun, like, all mm -hmm. the time. And when you watch it, you go, oh, I know that guy. I know her. I know him. And it was, like, really good comedic character actors who just... It wasn't the meatiest plot in the world, but they were just really good with timing and hitting their marks and line delivery. And so it just made it fun to watch. And this is completely a COVID movie because oh, it was filmed yeah, yeah, yeah. like after the height of COVID in Italy. And you like, can feel peak, that it is, yeah. But it... Not too, can, too much. You can tell, but it doesn't feel as bad as some movies yeah. that we've watched during COVID. It's not the COVID movies where, like, you keep going, well, everybody's in front of a green screen, or those people aren't in the same room together. No, they just made a plot where, like, it's going to be... Very contained. Like, contained, and they made a plot that made sense as to why it was contained the way it is. Um, and then also, like... There's never, like, a ton of characters around each other other than this core group of people. Yeah. So there's, like, no big crowd scenes or anything. And you don't really need them based on the story. Like, no. that just wouldn't make any sense. Nope. Um, I think standouts, Tim Heidecker is in this movie. So anybody out there that loves Tim Heidecker is he... <coughs> I felt like he was kind of taking... Because uh, he kind of reuses characters, which isn't a bad thing. But he has sort of types. Yeah. And the character he's playing here is very similar to if people that have seen um, I Think You Should Leave, where he shows up as the older boyfriend at a party. That's the jazz. And, and it's, yeah, it's all the charade stuff, but he just keeps putting obscure jazz artists in the hat. And it's that sort of like older guy who thinks he's, an, he's on the same level as the sort of masters that he's working with at this institute. Because there's this hilarious thing, and it's Lauren Woodman again, uh, who played the stable owner, shows up as the sort of institute chef that's there to show them how to make these dishes 
And she's... And none of them are chefs. All of them, it's supposed to be... They're all managers. A contest where managers that are selected get to go to the institute. So I don't know why they're learning how to do this. And it's just like, I'm, they're going to show them how to do the food. But Tim Heidecker's character, was he Fran or Dana? I think he might have been Dana. I think it was Dana, yeah, because Zach um, Woods plays Fran. Who won a top, not top chef, a chopped kind of thing. We lost it. He lost it against a 13-year-old, which was great because someone else was like, I saw the episode. Yeah, this keeps me coming to think because he wants to show like, here, let me show you my expertise with all my years. And they keep pointing out like, you lost to a 13-year-old on that contest. Like, And they didn't figure out until later, um, Molly Shannon, who's in it. Again, oh, she is so so good. good. Like, she was good in Horse Girl. But it's like she wasn't doing comedy. She was doing that concerned, like, mom slash aunt figure that she does so well. The character in Spin Me Round is there's this type of person that Molly Shannon doesn't play often. But when she plays them, she did it in The White Lotus. Yeah. Is this, it is a woman of her age, like, in her 50s, going on, you know, early 60s who is, she's not evil, (laughs) but you really don't like her. She She seems a little off. It, like, crosses barriers that she shouldn't. Yeah. And I do love the fact that later on when you see the extremes that she's going through, you start to realize why the fuck she should have never lost her suitcase. Yeah, because that's, we meet her. That is, like, Looking real morose because they lost her suitcase. And Amber, Alison Brie's character, is just, she's very much your kind of like 80s comedy protagonist of straight person, good person, right? Yeah. And she is like, you can wear anything you want out of my suitcase. And me as an audience member, because I know where these movies go, I'm like, oh no, she just signed her like warrant here just to be uh, annoyed the entire movie. Yeah. And she is. Uh, Molly Shannon's character just won't leave her alone. Uh-huh. Is gets mad at her over things that she has no right to get mad at her over. Yeah. Uh, but it does it so good and so funny. Yes. Just and I think Molly Shannon is just one of those underrated comedic talents. She's a treasure that people yes. need to realize. Yes. That is there. Uh, and then Zach Woods. Uh, always, always great. Who, if our audience out here, they're like, who's Zach Woods? Uh. He was in Silicon Valley as their sort of manager, supervisor type person. He was person. also in The Office. I've never seen the, the whole yeah. thing. He's just in he, The yeah, Office. Yeah, he's, he's one of those like uh, UCB theater improv guys. Google his name. You will know immediately yeah. who he is. And he does the. He also does a thing that I really like. In the same way that Molly Shannon has this type of character she can play really well. Uh, Zach Woods... He has like kind of two core characters, and I don't think it's bad that he plays most of the time he's playing one of them because he does it so well. The first character you'd see in um, Silicon Valley, the sort of like sad sack, where like the more you learn about him, the more you're like, oh god, <laughs> like this guy's life is so bad. But like, it's still funny, but also you like hurt for him. Then this character starts out fairly normal. But it's that other Zach Woods character where the intensity ratches up real hard. I mean, he did do this in Silicon Valley, but it was like near the end. Anger. Yeah, yeah. And this sort of like, because he doesn't come across as a guy with a lot of rage. No. But he plays the guy who, like, when he snaps and the rage comes out, it's funny. But you're also like, Jesus, it's calm funny, down. Funny, but you also understand where that rage yes. is coming from. Yes. 
He's been calm and accepting the whole time, and then suddenly he snaps. And the thing but is, he's like, funny in that he's really bad at like jabbing back at the person. Like he doesn't know how to insult the person, so the things he says are like the stupidest things. Or they go to the extremes because he's or, yeah. the one that points out like that you know Tim Heidecker's character like lost against a thirteen year old. Yeah, like he just loses it. Or it's the thing that like you're not supposed to say even when you're in an argument with someone, so it just like deflates the whole room. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's a film that has like and really good character actors. And he played so well against Allison Brie. Like, yeah, I'd like to see they, them in a movie again together. Yeah, I think they were really good pair. Um, uh, and then uh, Alessandro Nivola, who last time we saw him was in the Many Saints of Newark as uh, oh, Tony's uh, uncle. Uh, and yeah, and when you <laughs> see this movie, you're like, man, he was wasted in that movie because he's also hilarious here. Yeah, he's very charming. He's like... But then when the pathetic side comes out, it's so so good. Um, It's like his pathetic side is as pathetic as his charming side is charming. And as soon as he starts to reveal his true face, you are with Amber and you're just like, I am so turned off by this guy. He is just the most pathetic loser. And it's so bad. And like Aubrey Plaza plays his assistant. Yeah. Um, who I was like, is there a thing between them? Like their relationship was one where I was it like, it was like contempt. She yeah. was just like so done with him, and that's why she ends up getting fired because she ends up saying too much. Like she's this is a person who's watched him do this again and again and again, and is so over it. Well, at a certain point, Amber ends up in a love triangle between Alessandro and Aubrey Plaza's characters. Yeah. Uh, where they're both trying, like, and Aubrey Plaza's character just simply wants to take her from him. Yes. That's her only reason. She has no interest in Amber. It's just, he wants her, so I'm going to take her. Well, I think it's sort of like, they have an attraction towards each other. They could be, like, this amazing couple, but Kat is also sort of like, I'm not risking my life, like, the rest of my life for you. I like you, but I'm not going to fight tooth and nail for you against a dude that I happen to know has a ton of money, but is really fucked up, and I, and I, and she's basically like, I need to quit. Because she's just like... She talks to she talks to Amber and she's like, I don't remember the last time I was in a time zone for more than two weeks, the same time zone. Mm-hmm. I don't sleep that much. Like I'm his assistant, but I'm like constantly doing all these random things. And like, but she's also the very smart person because she's like constantly reading. She wants new experiences. And the problem is she just disappears from the movie. And it was yes. her character like there might be a way for her to disappear from the movie if certain things happen so that there's closure in that way. Like, we could but have seen her gone. pack her bags yeah, and go she's just gone. or something. She's just gone. And, and it's it, a pity because she's so interesting. Yeah. Because of the things that she's reading. She's like an elevated version of her Parks and Recs character. Like, personality-wise. Cause Less, I have, like, sitcom and more nuanced. Yes. Yeah, but still that kind of, like sullen yeah she's confident yeah, and trying she, to like rebel against things no this is someone who's obviously confident in their skin yeah, yeah. kind of thing she delivered it exactly like when they have like that makeout scene you're just like you feel that these people actually have chemistry mm-hmm. and then it's sort of like when that breaks away it's, well then when you realize she's basically doing this to fuck her boss over (laughs) well it's like she i think it was sort of like she likes amber but it's like when amber goes on the defense 
to Cat's boss, that's when like that's when the cat is done. Like she's like, I'm not gonna. Do- I'm telling you, he's a scumbag. He's done this multiple times. And at the beginning, when Amber is investigating it with Zach Wood's character Dana, she is telling like Dana's like, no, it's obviously he's the one that's leading this, and Cat's been forced to do this because it's her job. She and she's like, no, 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 it's been Cat's thing. Cat is the one that's hitting on a hall. Well, and that's but- when the film is doing the mystery genre. Yes, and so that's what we're at. what we're talking about is like. It feels every 30, it's like 20 to 30 minutes, the film switches yeah. what it is, which is why I think there might be a segment of the audience that does not like it. Because for people, if you want a movie that's just tonally consistent from start to finish, I don't think you're going to like this movie. If you're willing to watch something that's going to throw some curveballs at you, yeah, and it's going to expect you to be the one to pivot with it because it's not going to handhold you yeah i think you'd en- people will enjoy it because uh, it is it is very funny it's one of the funniest films i've seen in a long time and it kind of is in the realms of like little hours where it just shifts and moves along and so you're not really having a cohesive plot of sorts like there is a plot there's a beginning and an end and like she finds herself when i say the the third act is very chaotic yes and (laughs) And that's where i think it might lose a lot of people in that which is funny that was the part that like the the third act on horse girl kind of lost you a little bit yeah and then but this one it i could see you were pulled in because zach woods dana well because when he ratchets things up you're just like i gotta watch this guy do what he does he's so good like and it was great because they're running around physically going around places and having like discussions with each other when it's it's i think at its core we have all these genre switches but at its core it's a farce yes that sort of classic i would almost say like kind of like the preston sturges films we watched where it's sort of the stakes of the plot are not that big. Uh, they're very character-focused stakes. Um, and the film isn't interested in giving you a satisfying ending so much as it's interested in giving you like a funny ending. Yeah. It wants you to leave the theater on a funny note, uh, remembering all of the humor of the film rather than like, some overly serious like oh this character learned this and amber does learn something yeah but it's done in a very comical way and her final scene uh with uh nick alessandro's nivola's character is a very good scene yeah it is it is one of the best scenes in the movie and just her like she's so good in that scene and she's able to project the amber's growth in a way that doesn't feel like she's a totally different person. It's just, no. she learned a lesson. She learned something important. It didn't completely transform her life. She's still a manager at this place. Like, yeah. that's not changed. But she's just sort of learned something. Um, she's kind of learned her own value because she, yeah. at the beginning of the film, we don't know this until we get she gets into Italy. Like, she apparently like opened her own restaurant and that like her mm-hmm. boyfriend put everything under her name. And like ruined her credit, <laughs> ruined her credit. So she had to go back to being a manager. But it's this interesting thing that she's like heartbroken, but she's not really bitter about it, which shows you like this is a mature person who is wanting a happy ending, but then realizing like she doesn't want to be with broken people. <laughs> which, and I like to wrote the word mature because I kind of feel like the way things are presented in the movie, even when they're absurd 
still feels mature. Like, this is a movie for adults. Yeah. Uh, the restaurant that they work at. I could easily see in another movie that being, like, really exaggerated and there being a lot of, like, sight gags and, and like, really making it grotesque. And Jeff Bain, I think, does a really good job of making it very unappetizing, the food and things being made there. Yeah. But it feels realistic in that, like, well, everything's just being thrown in a microwave and, like... It's, like, not the worst... It's wor- fast food Italian. Yeah. It's not really, like... It doesn't look like the worst food in the world. It's just... You just know it's not great. Yeah. you're, And it's... So, it's funny that they end up going <coughs> to Italy and not really tasting the local cuisine because they're stuck where they are. Yeah. They ju- they only eat food at the Institute. And so, it's, like, this thing of being, like, yeah, they keep saying that their influences are this, but... They're going to keep doing what they're doing in order to make money. And, like, even the owner is remarking at the fact that he's like, you think I wanted this? But he's like, now I have so much money. What am I supposed to do? There's one guy I want to bring up. Ben Sinclair. Yeah. Who plays Craig. He's so that good. That is a, like, breakout performance, in my opinion. <clears throat> he's an employee of the Institute. He's kind of the handler for the guests that are there. And he's very strict about we all are staying on the grounds of the Institute unless we all go on a pre-planned field trip. When you hear that and you, I think you imagine the kind of character this is, it is not that character. I don't, he's kind of like a stoner, but a little scary. A like, little weird. Yeah, like, it's such an interesting performance. He is in his own little world, and he doesn't care about anybody else. And it is highly amusing because because he's in his own little world, he gets caught up in things. So when the chaos happens, he's kind of like, what? <laughs> like, but like, even when it gets chaotic, he like doesn't lose his cool. But then that just makes it funnier because... These are the things he was like telling them not to do, and they've done them. And you would think he'd be mad, but he's—he never gives you the reaction that you would expect. Yeah, which just yeah, it makes his character even more intriguing because you're trying to like get a bead on who this guy is and like what he's about. Yeah, and I like that the movie just leaves him as this mystery. Yeah, uh, in the film, but yeah, that was spin me round. Uh, I would recommend it if you if what we described to you sounds like something that you would enjoy, yeah. seek it out. But if it just isn't your type of comedy, because it, I feel like Jeff Baina is the answer to the UK weird films that we've watched. He is, yeah, I would say he is taking that sort of dry British slow burn humor and translating it in, for American audiences. That kind yeah, of a thing. Yeah, but without really dumbing it down or no, making yeah, it more sitcom-y. Like, you've got to pay attention. You have to give yourself to the movie because the movie is going to do subtle things that you need to pay attention to. Otherwise, you're not going to get jokes that are happening down yeah. the line. Kind of thing. That was the Pop Cult Podcast for this week. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and maybe you'll check out some of these Jeff Baina, Allison Brie movies. I'll make sure to check out our show notes for any links to on our blog that are relevant to this episode, and that blog is popcult.blog, which you should be checking out. We've got new posts coming up uh, every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then more on the weekends. Right now, we're in the middle of a series looking at the uh, body of film so far from director Alexander Payne. 
Uh, we just reviewed Citizen Ruth and Election, and so we've got About Schmidt and the others coming up soon. Uh, after our Alexander Payne series, we'll be doing a look at Francis Ford Coppola's work in the 1980s. Not a decade that is considered his strongest decade, but a decade full of really interesting movies. Like, lots of different stuff going on in there. If you enjoy what you hear here on the podcast and what you read over on popcult.blog, I would really suggest you check out our Patreon, which is linked in the show notes and also on the blog. Uh, over at Patreon, we're just in the early stages of growth. We've got some, you know, reward levels, some goals we're working towards. Uh, speaking of, I want to thank our patrons, Becca and Matt. They both donate at the $10 writer's room level, and that allows them to pick one movie every month that I will review. Uh, if you donate at that level, you get the option to add your own comments if you want uh, before my review. If you have any thoughts you want to share about the movie. Uh, and so, yeah, we're really working on kind of growing that Patreon. Uh, the bigger it gets, the more things we're going to be doing, and the more we're just kind of going to expand what Pop Cult is. So, until next time, keep watching. Keep watching.